You're listening to Pazdachipotle, the show that will take you to discover the edible treasures of Mexico. Episode 12. Hola, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Paz de Chipotle, the audible companion of Sabor, This is Mexican Food, a digital magazine dedicated to exploring the markets, streets, recipes, and traditions that make Mexico an edible paradise. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food historian, cook, and author. To find more information about this project, please go to pazdechipotle.com. Find the show on Twitter as Chipotle Podcast. You can subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, and Player FM. Well, I can't believe we are already on the final weeks of September. I don't know about you, but I feel that this year has been the case of a quick, quick slow. And before we notice, autumn is already upon us. I am recording this episode on the evening of September 20, just a few hours after the big earthquake we had in central Mexico. And I want to thank all of you for your very kind messages. And I'm sure the city will put itself together very quickly. The community has shown an outstanding spirit of solidarity. I'm sure things will get back to normal very quickly. And of course, well, we need to get back on track uh, so the show must go on. I want to give a few shouts to some friends of the show that have been following every episode from day one and sharing their appreciation in many occasions. So here's a big hug all the way to Paris to Elsa Barreda, Chris Rice, who recently shared how much him and his lovely family enjoyed my ebook Puebla's Great Food Tour. You can find more about it on my website. English historian and author Matthew Lyons for endorsing the show in the Twitterverse, Nesca Pfeiffer, the Mexican Food Journal, Sixth Generation Baker and BBC Victorian Baking star John Swift for his many, many kind mentions. Also a shout to the spicy foodie and KP Chong. I appreciate you all and I'm really happy that Paz de Chipotle has become one of your favorite shows. Thank you, thank you. Gracias to all of you. Now, in previous episodes, we've talked about the enormous cultural and gastronomic heritage that immigrant communities have brought to Mexico and how they have influenced the country's culinary traditions, more specifically, street food. On episode 9, I shared the story of how thousands of Chinese immigrants came to Mexico in the 19th century and how many Jewish people escaped persecution from the Spanish Inquisition and posed as converted Christians to survive in colonial Mexico and gifted us with their outstanding baking traditions. So, continuing with this conversation, this episode will include a section about the Arab diaspora in Mexico, the long-standing tradition of sweet and cool aguas frescas, or refreshers, and one little insect whose blood we've drank, eaten, and even worn for centuries. Ay ay ay. So as you can see, we've got plenty to talk about. So let's get on with the show. Hola, 
In previous episodes, I've mentioned how Arab culinary traditions reached Mexico due to the fact that the Iberian Peninsula was for centuries dominated by Arab caliphates. But that wouldn't be the last of the contacts that the Americas, and Mexico specifically, will have with the Arab world. In fact, that was just the beginning of it. Because the cultural relationship we maintained, it will be one of mutual admiration, friendship, and the encounter of two rich and beautifully elaborate culinary traditions that could only result in a feast of epic proportions. This is a little-known but wonderful story of the Arab diaspora in Mexico. Although it's commonly assumed that it was only or mainly Lebanese immigrants who came and made Mexico their home, I wouldn't be doing any justice to the nearly 100,000 Arab-speaking people that came from Iraq, Palestine, Turkey, Egypt, Libya, Syria, Iran, and of course, in the 20th century, from Lebanon. And this Lebanese community alone constitutes more than 40% of the immigrants from the Middle East in Mexico. But let's tell this story from the beginning. What came in with a constant maritime trade between Spain and Mexico was so much more than eager colonizers, immigrants, farming animals and plants that were introduced. A less known and much sinister cargo was on board of those ships, and that was thousands of human cargo that Spaniards captured mostly by means of kidnapping to be sold as slaves in the New World. Innocent victims of a colonizing ambition were taken from the Far East and Africa, but also a good portion were captured during the cultural cleanse and religious persecution in Spain, including Arab Muslims. Although it is fair to say that the subsequent Arab migrations to Mexico were much larger in numbers, the vast majority of these people were actually Christians. Some were Catholic and some Orthodox. But they all had in common the fact that most of them came with not much than what they could carry with their own hands and had to rebuild their lives with it. The prolonged conflicts between the Ottoman Empire and pretty much everyone around them caused enormous displacement during the 19th and 20th centuries. And that's how many Catholic refugees from the Arab countries found asylum in other Christian countries, like Mexico. Their condition, however, didn't stop them from getting themselves together as their uncanny entrepreneurial culture really proved to be the key to help them forge a better life. They might have arrived as humble refugees, but in a matter of a few decades, they became merchant bankers, business owners and restaurateurs. Their literature, myths and history really capture Mexicans' imagination and even inspired a most uncanny superhero. But we'll get on to that later. In the 1960s, the then president, Adolfo López Mateos, famously said something like, if you don't have a Lebanese friend, you better get yourself one. This was a joke, of course, but that underlined how generally well-accepted and regarded Arab people were. But what brings us here is food, of course. 
So let me tell you that, of all the Mexican cities where Arab immigrants relocated, very famously in Puebla, they formed a large community, and many of their members turned to the food industry to find their true call. Juicy and heavily marinated meats, slow-cooked on vertical spits, known commonly as shawarma, were by far the best and most successful gastronomic import that could have ever happened in the history of food exchange. But some compromises had to be made in order to, well, navigate from culture to culture in the most gracious and delicious way. From colonial times, pork had become the most popular meat in Mexico. It is cheap, always available, and very rich. So, that substituted other meats, such as lamb or goat, And of course, chiles had to find their way into these new recipes. And what better chiles than smoky chipotles, seasoned with spices and vinegar, to give the meat a perfect balance. But no doubt, the round wheat flatbread that was used to serve the meat in was just as important to ensure its success and incorporation to the Mexican diet. Because, as you can imagine, For taco lovers, it was like meeting good old corn tortillas' distant relative. And this dish, that the world knows under the generic name of kebabs, in Mexico, this enriched version is known as Arab tacos, or tacos árabes. Of this great innovation, another magnificent recipe was born. But this one, with a stronger Mexican influence, pastor tacos. And they're kind of the spicier sibling of Arab tacos, cooked in the same way, but the pork steaks are marinated in a thick coat of anato and orange juice paste. And they are always served with very thin slices of juicy pineapple, garnished with coriander and raw onion. Dozens of taquerias all over the city in Puebla usually serve this combo of Arab and pastor tacos along with many other spectacular creations, such as Arab pizza, gringas, and Arab tortas, or sandwiches. In the full issue of Sabor, this is Mexican food, you will find recipes with easy-to-follow steps to prepare both pastor and Arab tacos at home, including, of course, their culinary history. And last but not least, I haven't forgotten of our mysterious character. It is very likely that you have never heard of the heir to the throne of Kalimatan, who ended up fighting crime, Tomb Raiders, Nazis, vampires, aliens and zombies in Mexico. And the name of this superhero, I hear you ask, is Kaliman, who used his powers of mind-reading, hypnotism and astral projection to accomplish his dangerous missions. This fascinating character leaped from radio dramas to printed comic books. And although it's been out of print for many years, Kaliman was and still remains a cult figure in Mexican pop culture. And many sociologists agree that the fascination that Mexicans had with the Arab world had much to do with the large Arab diaspora, who was in many ways key to inspire this story and influence how well-loved it became. Caballero con los hombres. 
galante con las mujeres. Tierno con los niños. Implacable con los malvados. Así es. We'll return with the next section of the show after this break. My new ebook, Puebla's Great Fortune, is out. My beautiful city is the undisputed gastronomic capital of Mexico's grand cuisine. With this ebook, you will eat, drink, and discover Puebla's culinary heritage and the historical events that shaped the edible treasures of a world acclaimed cuisine. Take this exciting gastronomic journey with you in all your digital devices. Use the interactive foodie checklist, navigate the city with fully detailed maps, follow and enjoy the wonderful edible and historical trails of Puebla. The tour combines visits to key heritage sites that have shaped Puebla's history, together with a recommended selection of tasty dishes and refreshing drinks. The book also contains the necessary practical information to help you navigate the menus and order like a true local. One thing is for sure, after this tour, you will understand why Mexico's national cuisine is an infinite source of inspiration, knowledge and pleasure. Go to pazdechipolle.com to find more about Puebla's Great Four Tour, the ebook. Have you ever wondered what 16th century cardinal robes, ancient Mayan royal wedding gowns, pre-Columbian pottery, crimson red lipstick and Starbucks strawberry milkshake have in common? Well, it turns out that they're all died with blood of the Nochestli parasite. You might not have heard of that Nahuatl name, but maybe the word cochineal rings a bell. It so happens that every now and then common knowledge is true, and sometimes even the smallest of creatures can change the history of the world. From remote times, the tribes that occupied the Mexican territory known today as Oaxaca discovered a tiny little parasite that feeds on the sap of the nopal cactus. And being such a small creature, only about, say, a fourth of your pinky's nail, it is very easily killed when lightly pressed with your finger against the cactus. And then, a thick, deep and slightly viscous substance pours out of the deceased insect. Its blood has one of the most beautiful shades of red you have ever seen, and I assure you, you have seen it, and even eaten it, even if you have never realized this before. The farming of Nochestli became a great source of income for the numerous tribes in Oaxaca, and they used it extensively for the dyeing of fine textiles, pottery, and makeup. You see, it turns out that across space and time, many cultures have shared a fascination with certain colors, and crimson red indeed is one of them, often seen as regal, powerful, and even seductive. But we really seldom stop and think, where does these and many other dyes are obtained from? After the arrival of Spanish conquistadors and in the large global commerce of the colonial period, minerals such as gold and silver, gems, animal skins and even pigments 
were a very profitable item on board of merchant ships. Now the Spaniards got actually very lucky because red dye was very very difficult to come by in Europe and people mostly used the root of madder to obtain a similar but much paler pigment. So the Spanish commerce just really got lucky because they have found something that was even more profitable and almost limitless in its sourcing than gold, cochineal, and they actually kept the secret of how they sourced the pigment, and by doing that they monopolized the trade and kept the Dutch, French, Italians, Russians and English begging for more. Now Chestley or cochineal exploitation became rapidly part of the colonial production system, and even they introduced it in other regions such as Puebla and Tlaxcala in the central high plains of Mexico. From the mid-1500s to the 19th century, cochineal dominated the pigment industry, and it became the third most profitable product that was ever exported from the Americas to Europe. Even the red coats of the English troops were famously dyed with cochineal, and it was highly appreciated by wallpaper manufacturers, makeup and oil paint producers as well. But the dawn of the Industrial Revolution enabled innovations that allowed, that allowed the production of synthetic pigments that put an end to the cochineal industry. However, and this is the interesting part, it was in reasonably modern times when the mass production of packaged food that cochineal dye was used to boost the colors of processed foods, from meats to jellies, candy, yogurt, juice, ice cream, and even ketchup brands use cochineal. Although Starbucks recently made a move to stop using nice cochineal juice, instead they swapped for the oh-so-tasty chemical colorings to prepare those diabetes-inducing, horrifying unicorn drinks. But many food manufacturers are quite happy to keep using this ancient little Mexican bog to dye their products. On a final note, I just want to tell you not to be grossed out, because it's not very dramatic. It's just a little bog juice. And anyways, chances are that many people will never actually come to see one of these little insects in the flesh. But at least we can all take a moment to appreciate the ancient indigenous people of Oaxaca for inadvertently gifting the world with one of the world's most desired substances. Nochestly blood. We'll be back with the last segment of the show after this break. Day or night, the busy streets of Mexico's towns and cities are constantly buzzing with music, people and the delicious smells that emanate from an unimaginable and amazing range of foods, snacks and drinks. The fall issue of Sabor, This is Mexican Food celebrates the world-famous Mexican street food and the cultural value of the nation's rich 
and ethnically diverse cooking traditions. With more than 16 emblematic recipes from the Grand Mexican street food repertoire and five in-depth articles exploring the memorable stories of immigration and entrepreneurship, of family recipes and shared cultures to inspire you making a delicious cultural feast. To know more about the wonderful articles and recipes to bring the irresistible Mexican street food into your kitchen, go to pazdechipotle.com forward slash magazine. Take Sabor with you on all your digital devices. Go to pazdechipotle.com forward slash magazine and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined. Many of you might remember the first time you ever traveled to Mexico. What did you imagine it would look like? An endless tropical jungle? Perhaps just golden beaches gleaming under the sun? Or even dry, merciless deserts with donkeys and saguaro cacti? Whichever these scenarios you thought of, I'm sure the reality you encountered was quite different. And the reason is that Mexico is an immensely rich and large land that is part of the lucky 12 countries in the whole world that harbour between 60 and 70% of the total biodiversity of the planet. What this means, culinarily speaking, is an almost limitless constant exploration of edible plants, mushrooms, wild animals and even insects to eat. The native indigenous tribes have ventured in this experimentation and developed a great knowledge about the medicinal uses of thousands of plants. And not only that, these, of course, involved plenty of great culinary discoveries. I can only imagine what it would have been for these indigenous people when they first tried sugar, coffee or milk for the first time, never mind the upset tummies. It must have felt like a great revelation. And the same goes for Spaniards, who must have thought of Mexico as the very Garden of Eden, with such variety of fruits and vegetables that grew all year round, and people never grew hungry. For this land was truly blessed with such variety of ecosystems that allowed anything to be grown. Most introduced species somehow easily adapted, and this only benefited the creation of the mother of all proverbial testing kitchens in colonial times. But coping with hot temperatures in Mexico has always been a challenge. Colonial urban settlements changed forever the way in which people preserved, prepared and consumed food. And in some cases, what was once considered as sacred became secular. And there's also the case of some Spanish everyday foods and drinks that became sacred for some indigenous tribes. As an example of the first case, we have drinking cocoa that once was a ceremonial drink in ancient Mexico. You can revisit episode 6 of the show to hear more about this. And during the colonial times, the preparation of cocoa changed and it became an everyday treat. And the opposite was for rum, which became part of rituals and ceremonies 
for many indigenous communities. But that evidently wasn't the case for every pairing of ingredients from the old and the new world, and in the creation of aguas frescas, or refreshers, often prepared with pulps, extracts and infusions of Mexican fruits, bogs, seeds and roots, these only improved with the addition of foreign spices, molasses, sugar, alcohol and even milk. Amongst the many aguas frescas that are present at the Mexican tables and of course available to purchase on the go in the busy hot streets of Mexico, we can find agua de jamaica, made with a strong infusion of dried and boiled hibiscus flowers, creamy horchatas, made with rice, coconut, almonds and even ground cantaloupe seeds, and thingy agua de limón, prepared with freshly squeezed limes and served with chia seeds. But some have an added oomph if they are enriched with stimulants such as cocoa, or even fermented like pineapple tepache. But there is one in particular that is black as night, sweet and voluptuously aromatic. Its base ingredients are sauce from the tropical east coast of Mexico, and every sip is like drinking the essence of the rainforest. And this drink is zarza parrilla. The famous Persian scientist, naturalist and explorer Alexander von Humboldt vividly recounted how impressed he was with the flavor of the smilex or sarsaparilla root, which he tried during his expeditions in New Spain between 1803 and 1804. He even went further to say that the coastal state of Veracruz produced the best cotton, sugarcane and many other crops vastly superior in quantity and quality than any other place he ever encountered. Mexican zarzaparrilla is not the same at all as the popular root beer sold in America, Jamaica and Europe, even when they're both served in similar ways. You see, sarsaparilla, or Mexican zarzaparrilla, is not brewed and prepared in a thick and sweet syrup in which vanilla and a strong infusion of sarsaparilla root are the key ingredients. I have vivid memories of drinking zarzaparrilla as a child from a condensed high glass, swirling a straw to see the large ice cubes going around in the drink as I took large sips and then fall into blissfully sugary oblivion. From colonial times, zarzaparrilla remains still a popular drink in the state of Veracruz and also in some old-school diner-like places. If you want to know the full story and evolution of the zarzaparrilla drink, make sure to purchase the full issue of Sabor, which includes the step-by-step -step recipe to prepare a traditional Mexican zarzaparrilla. So if you excuse me now, I'm gonna step back into my childhood one more time. Mm. Thank you for listening. I really love hearing from you. You can find the show on Twitter as Chipotle Podcast. To find more information about this project, please go to pazdechipotle.com. Support this show on Patreon, the largest platform that connects creators with great audiences like you. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle Podcast. 
and select the type of donation you want to make. Every donation makes a big difference. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast and be part of this delicious story. Well, that's it for today. Goodbye from me, my friends. Until the next time. <laughs>